If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. After the psychological trauma and family separation of the Second World War, Britain underwent an emotional revolution. Post-war psychologists and social reformers placed more emphasis than ever on the vital importance of loving and intimate family relationships. And as Terry Chetty's new book Intimate State explores, this intimacy wasn't just intended to improve life at home, but also to forge a new generation of productive and perfectly well-adjusted citizens. I spoke to Terry to find out more. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Terry, to talk about your book Intimate State. It looks at how ideas about family and intimate relationships underwent a transformation in post-war Britain. So what were some of the new ideas that were being thrown around about sex, love, parenting and family life at this time? Well, the main thing that my book looks at and tracks the history of is how emotion becomes a really core, important component of all of the relationships that you just sort of touched on now. So sexual relationships should be ideally emotional relationships with sex really just being a kind of, you know, an expression of that 
family life should be rooted in close, emotional, intimate connection. Friendships even then come to be sort of looked at later in the period that I that I cover as well through a similar sort of lens of emotion really kind of taking the forefront of importance. So what was going on in Britain at this time? Why do you think that there suddenly was this focus on the importance of emotion and intimacy? Yeah, it's an important question. So why suddenly are so many people talking about emotion in these different arenas when they weren't talking about emotion previously? Is it the war? Can we offer such a simple kind of causal explanation of the war, the dislocations of war caused this? Around 735,000 children were evacuated from their homes and billeted out to temporary foster families. And those children were, you know, acting out. They were bedwetting. This was one of the sort of sources of evidence that were being pointed to as the family and those core, you know, stable emotional relationships are important for mental health. So here we see one aspect of of the war kind of bringing emotion to the forefront. Also, as um, part of the war is the fact that husbands and wives are being separated for long periods of time. And as people are returning to their homes after the war, the divorce rate skyrockets. And so there are conversations around how did this happen? Okay, the war might have caused it, but now we have to deal with it. What exactly is happening in the home that needs to become the focus? And emotion, the quality of the emotional relationship between husband and wife, between parent and child, these became the core sort of focus. And this idea about it being a problem that needs to be dealt with is interesting because this is essentially the state getting involved in people's personal lives. And I think that this ties into some interesting themes about post-war Britain, doesn't it? So it's the same kind of time that we're getting the welfare state emerging. Can you talk a bit about that relationship between the personal and the political and how those two became intertwined in this period? So at the end of the war, we see not only a skyrocketing divorce rate and also a rise in the incidence of juvenile delinquency, as well as violent crime, sexual crimes, rising rates of alcoholism, rising rates of violence in the home. So there are all of these different social problems that are really notably on the rise, as well as some studies of the mental health services nationwide had shown that the rate of neurotic illness was also on the rise. This is a moment where the welfare state is coming into formation and questions are very much at the forefront of what what the state is really supposed to do. So yeah, the state is supposed to deal with issues of unemployment and maintaining material well-being, but increasingly alongside all of these social problems and whole host of explanations that are being offered by psychiatrists, psychologists, and even some sociologists pointing to family breakdown as the root of all of these social problems— There's increasing conversation around the state's investment in making sure that families actually stay whole. Because the family is identified and those emotional relationships being so core to keeping families together and the state becoming invested in families because of there is increasingly a desire to, you know, curb the divorce rate, curb rising rates of violent crime and so on. And the family being you know, figured as an important sort of player in all of this. It really is because of this that the state becomes invested in, for example, funding marriage counseling services. The state becomes invested in therapies that are directed at women who are experiencing postpartum mental illness that 
focus on helping her be a quote-unquote better mother. These are just a couple of examples of how the state is actually funneling money into services that are specifically directed at improving family relationships. Can you tell us a bit more about that idealized model of family life that was being promoted? Was it as simple as mum, dad, and 2.4 kids? You know, the, the vision of the family was actually kind of simplistic. It was a family that at its center had a married husband and wife. And yes, the number of children in that family tended to be small. The idea here was that to have a really close emotional connection between mother and child, there needed to be not a ton of children in the home. And it needed to be materially affordable for the mother ideally to stay home and be supported by this male breadwinning partner who would go out. So ideally, she's at home just putting all of her energy and attention into bonding with her child or children. And I also, I initially flagged it as simplistic because there wasn't really a whole lot of explanation as to what bonding entailed or as to what a good relationship even looked like. It was a relationship that didn't involve conflict. That part was very clear that didn't involve anything on the spectrum of violence. And we're not even talking about physical violence, but even anything that might look like neglect. And what might look like neglect was just even a mother leaving her child for a few hours to go and do something out of the home. The ideal was that the, the bond between mother and child would be continuous and uninterrupted. And ideally, she would be having a great time with her child. She would not be experiencing any kind of low-lying resentment or even boredom or depression. So this idea of what the family was supposed to look like was incredibly simple, simplistic, and yeah, it was just this highly idealized and really unspecified sort of vision. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. How different or how revolutionary was that from what had gone before? Were people in the 50s the first people to be saying that family relationships should be like this? Or were they building on a longer body of work? So this is really a revolutionary moment in terms of attention that's being given to the emotional quality of relationships. So the parenting literature that was being 
produced before the Second World War was really focused on discipline and like feeding babies on a schedule. The idea that a baby might cry was not a problem as long as, you know, the schedule was being adhered to and certain rules were being followed. But what happens after the Second World War, as we're seeing this increasing attention to the quality of emotional life being so, so consequential for who the person would grow up to be, who the baby would grow up to be, and emotion sort of being seen as this panacea, this for all kinds of social ills, all kinds of mental health, potential mental health problems. The idea that the mother should just be continually present holding her child, breastfeeding also just her her baby as opposed to even considering using a bottle for the purposes specifically of forming this close emotional connection. This is new. So it's a lot of pressure put on women, some very exacting standards there. Were these ideas based on psychological studies or experiments? So one of the chief figures in the book that I'll just mention specifically is John Bowlby, who people listening may be familiar with. But John Bowlby was interested in understanding the rising rates of juvenile delinquency that had been reported, you know, throughout the 20s and 30s. Now, he was interested in this before the war. And he was interested in the role of the potentially neglectful mother in leading to the this rising rate, these rising rates of juvenile delinquency. So there was already this attention to motherhood's important in terms of like preventing all kinds of problems with different ways in which young people might act out. Now, after the war, with all of this panic surrounding these social problems, we see these ideas that had been promoted already, developed by John Bowlby before the war, really coming into prominence. And they're they're adopted not just by Bowlby, but by a whole host of other people who are active within reforming psychiatry in Britain after the Second World War. Many of these psychiatrists and psychologists were very politically connected. And so when, for example, there are there's a, a direct response that the government is interested in, how do we stem the rising divorce rate? Well, one of the main groups of people who provided evidence four committees who were studying this rising rate of divorce were people who were coming from the the world of psychology and psychiatry and to some extent social work and sociology. And the explanations that they were offering were not only targeting the importance of a close emotional connection between spouses as a way of preventing divorce, they were also providing evidence for how marital breakdown actually contributed to all of these psychological problems for children. And that would stay with them until they grew into adulthood and contributed to all of these social problems that people were worried about after the Second World War. So the rationale is really coming from the world of what I I guess could be just called the world of science. And this is a moment where there was an incredible faith in science in being able to solve potentially any problem I want to ask you a bit more about romantic and marital relationships as well. From what you've said there, was preserving a marriage at all costs basically the imperative? What about ideas that we might have today, for example, that if a marriage isn't going well, it might be healthier for two people to actually get divorced rather than stay together in a toxic situation? What was the take on that in post-war Britain? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Those positions have much more in common with one another than it might seem. And one thing that the book does look at is the connections actually between what we see in the late 1960s that actually ends up supporting the Divorce Reform Act that happens and, you know, that that is passed in 1969 that makes it easier for couples to divorce. The, the guiding idea was that it would enable people to find partners that they had a more genuine emotional connection with. And again, I already referred to the the evidence that's being provided to these government-led committees, evidence being provided by psychologists. The same thing is happening with divorce reform. We see much more concern with the effects of bad marriages on children and on the spouses themselves animating the debates around whether or not divorce should be liberalized than has previously really been looked at. It isn't, as you might think, an issue of protecting the rights of an individual, the right to kind of like choose one spouse and and leave a marriage if it isn't working out. It really was much more animated by this idea that emotional life is so consequential that keeping people married who shouldn't be married because, as you put it, the relationship is now so emotionally toxic that it can't be repaired, was much more detrimental not only to individuals in the family, but also to the nation more broadly because of, again, the contribution of all of these bad kind of emotional situations to social problems. The 1960s are often spoken about as an era of sexual revolution and sexual liberation. But did you find that in the sources that you looked at? I think there's a real tension that we see in the 1960s. There's much more of a presence of this idealization that had already been ongoing of what close intimate relationships do for people and for society more broadly than I had been expecting to see. So this idea that the sexual revolution constitutes this big break where we see a shift away from collectivist ideals of the social democratic moment, in which we see the welfare state on the rise, into this moment of high individualism, that's actually not what was happening. It was kind of a combination of both in some ways and both come together with in a concern for the wider importance of individual emotional and mental well-being. So the importance of relationships to people's own individual self-realization, yes, that was that was still very much as we think about of it as, as a part of that sexual revolutionary moment. But alongside that is also this idea of what is an ideal society and what makes an ideal society. And for these sexual revolutionaries, it was intimacy, just as it was for these welfareist reformers at the end of the Second World War. Was this reflected in attitudes towards the LGBTQ plus community at all? So what I found in, when I'm looking at LGBTQ plus activism was a couple of things. One, attention to the damaging psychological impact of stig- social stigma and social pathologization. And, and specifically what I, what I looked at is, and, and hasn't really been looked at, is how several of the campaigning groups that were active 
pr in promoting the first the decriminalization of homosexual relationships in the 1960s and then after that toward lessening stigma and promoting sexual equality essentially what i found with all of these activist organizations was much more attention to helping individuals become capable of forming close lasting sexual partnerships than i had been expecting to see so some of the organizations in particular in the 1960s, the Albany Trust being probably the most prominent, they were very much on board with the same sorts of intimacy idealization that we see with divorce reformers who are trying to basically make straight relationships better. So this, there's the same sort of thing going on, but I don't want to say that it's just, it's all the same because some of the more revolutionary organizations that were active in the early 1970s weren't so much sort of supportive of enabling people to have these lasting monogamous relationships, but instead they hadn't completely thrown away this whole psychological project. Instead, they focused on the importance of the psychological importance of community and the importance of lasting friendships. So what we see enduring for all of the changes is this idea that intimacy is not just a personal value, not just something that makes people happy or something that somebody might prefer or not prefer as an individual. What we see is so much more attention to the broader social and political outcomes of people having access to intimacy. And intimacy being seen as something that everybody should have in order to be fully realized selves and fully responsible citizens. Mm. In many ways, this sounds amazing. Everybody being more open to their emotions and to intimacy, enjoying these intimate relationships, which are really, as you say, fulfilling and help them realize themselves as a person and as a citizen. But was it that simple? Was there a cost to this, a dark side? And the pressures, for example, that were put on women to fulfill this like incredibly perfect role of mother, which in many ways was idealistic and not achievable for many people. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah. So there begins to be a little bit more active and vocal pushback against the expectations that are being placed on mothers by the 1960s, and not simply in feminist organizations, but even in kind of more mainstream publications. We see there was a series of articles that were run in The Guardian in 1961 entitled Miserable Married Women, in which attention was brought to women who had written into The Guardian confessing essentially to the fact that they were not happy with being stay-at-home mothers. Now, many of these women had already received had received college educations or they had formally worked. One woman, for example, identified herself as a former teacher, another identified herself as a former artist. And what they complained of, and really complaint isn't, I think, the wrong word to use, was the fact that they felt they'd been sold something that didn't actually turn out to be what they had expected. So what they had expected based on the parenting literature of the time, based on the advertisements that you saw in any sort of women's magazine, was that 
they would just be in love with their babies and they would love being home with them all day. They did not expect that the lack of help that they were receiving from their husbands would create so much resentment in them or as much resentment as they were experiencing. Some of these women confessed to you know, having fantasies of leaving or fantasies of not having children and feeling incredibly guilty as a result. So what this series of articles was pointing out was that this was not an individual phenomenon. This is not idiosyncratic. This is not like one strange woman here and another in a completely different part of the country. Instead, what was starting to become clear was that the demands that were being placed on women were not only incredibly unspecific and sort of difficult to even kind of know how to achieve, but they were just enormously high and came with tremendous psychological cost. I mean, all of these women were complaining of feeling, you know, depressed or incredibly anxious, needing more psychiatric help or needing psychiatric help at all. So there, there begins to be more attention to the difficulties of motherhood. But interestingly, the response is not, you know, universally, well, let's change expectations of mothers. No, instead, it's let's change the service, the psychiatric services specifically that are being offered to these women. So more attention that is being given in the 1960s to this whole phenomenon of postpartum mental illness, really for the first time in a way that resembles, you know, sort of our thinking of it about it today. So essentially, rather than questioning the demands of motherhood, despite the fact that there were so many women who were confessing to the fact that they actually really were quite miserable, instead, there's just more psychiatric support that's being given. And the psychiatric support that was given very often focused on treating women with their babies together in an institutional environment where they could be actually given more attention by nurses on how to properly bond with their children, how to properly meet the demands of motherhood. So it continued to be seen, at least in some quarters, some quarters that were specifically funded by the NHS as a psychiatric problem. How does that compare with the experiences of men, what was expected from people who took on the roles of father or husband? I'll approach this more from a kind of idealized perspective, in the idealized perspective that's coming from these psychiatrists and psychologists who are really quite successful in getting funding for the therapies that they're offering that focus specifically on the mother-child relationship. The father really didn't have anything more than a supportive financial role. So, for example, John Bowlby, who I mentioned earlier, really saw the father's role as that purely of a breadwinner, but having a psychological value. So if the father could actually properly perform this role, then he was enabling his spouse, his wife, to have a lot of time to bond with her children. But in terms of him being present and needing to perform any kind of role, that was really eliminated from the conversation until we see the emergence of fathers' rights groups in the 1970s who are pushing back on this. So if in the event of divorce, there was really no question that children should be in the custody, now this is in the early 1970s, in the wake of divorce reform, should be in the custody of their mothers, again, to avoid the disruption of this bond. And we see in the mid-1970s pushback from fathers' rights groups who are arguing that no, it shouldn't be gender-specific. Children need to bond with parents more generally. However, this is new, or at least 
this is new in terms of thinking about fathers as performing any kind of emotional role with their children. Until this point, really, in the period that I'm looking at from the 40s into the 70s, it's really women who are seen as naturally, psychologically, the emotional engines of their families. The idea here is that the socialization that women receive and basically their psychological development, if it occurs in a healthy family environment, will naturally orient them to become easily very relational sort of people, the kinds of people who can bond with their children effortlessly. And finally, Terry, if the psychologists or the reformers of post-war Britain got in a time machine and came to Britain today, what do you think that they would make of the ways that we think about and talk about family relationships and intimacy today? Well, Bowlby in particular, I think would be quite pleased with the ubiquity of attachment theory at this point. I mean, the interest that people have in relationships and healthy relationships as stemming from the experiences they had in childhood, I think that there is incredible continuity with this moment that I'm talking about. I think our present day cultural and personal obsessions with our childhoods and how our childhoods set us up for being the kinds of people who can have good relationships as adults, I think that has really stayed with us. I think the world would not seem very unfamiliar to people in the moment that I'm describing today. That was Terry Chettier speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Terry's book, Intimate State, How Emotional Life Became Political in Welfare State Britain, is published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 